Lord God, thank you so much that you are a God who is more reliable to us than the sunrise and the sunset. That you're the one who desires steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that you draw us close to you. Help us to know you better, know you more deeply, to know you more clearly, to follow you more dearly. Um, and uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would bless us in our class this morning and help us as we, especially as we get into Manicheanism and uh, try to figure out what that's all about. And then as we, we answer that, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, we would all be enriched, each and every one, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we are back to the heresy zone. Do-do-do-do. There's Rod Serling. Yes, Rod. And so this is a fit, there's a fifth dimension beyond that, beyond that which is known to man. It's a dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity. It's the middle ground between light and shadow, the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is also an area we call the heresy zone. Only those of you who grew up watching Twilight Zone will appreciate me saying that every Sunday. So, uh, so our aims. Well, like, let's do this. Can anybody remember? It's been two weeks. Can anybody remember any of our aims in this class? What are some of our aims in this class? Yeah. Know who Christ is? Okay. Know who Christ is? Yep. Yeah. Anybody else? Others? Yeah, so seeing those, those heresies, those errors of the past, and then kind of seeing how they work out even in today, and then, yes, good. Okay, what else? All right, here we go. So ultimately, it's uh, to, that we're able to be aware, be stable, and to grow. In Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 17 to 18, after he talked about those who who are unstable people, who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. Then Peter says, and he ends his letter with these words, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's the number one aim, is that we're not carried away by the air of lawless people and lose our stability, but instead we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the number one, but also become familiar, as Bob was pointing out, become familiar with aspects of our early history by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments for the first five centuries, reflect on our own day and our own place in history, and be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. So all this is not just for us to sit around to become critical, but it's to actually be able to uh, not only know Christ, as Tony mentioned, but to be able to, uh, to help others as well, to be able to answer them and to be able maybe to help them not get carried away by that, those errors. And so we, our plan has been, and this is what we've worked through already, most of this, uh, we've talked about in our first class what is heresy and how to think about it. And then we've gone through the Ebionites, the Mar- Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, oops, Montanism, Arianism, Modalism. Today we're going to look at Manicheanism. And then next week, uh, the Donatists, or Donatism, Nestorianism and then end with Pelagianism. That's where our, our plan is. And if you think of any other heresies that we just need to look at, let me know, and we'll go back and, 
I'll put them in there at some point, some place. So let's talk about Manicheanism. Let's deal with the delineations and define Manicheanism, uh, discuss modern manifestations, and deliberate on biblical responses. And, and this is where I really need you know, a lot more engagement here when we get to this point. So that should get the coffee a chance to work and get in your system and all that good stuff, all right? All right, so some delineations. Most of, our, of the various heresies we've looked at and will continue to look at, and this is throughout history, most of the various heresies are answering our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And that answer will shape, very often will shape how they, how we, how they view other topics. It can also go the other way. You might hear something that's very phenomenal or spectacular or something that really catches your attention over here, and it, but... So you need to be, able to, be able, uh, to be able to move to the question, Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And I think you will find that that is really the root of all the other things that are said. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. And so then further, various aspects of heresies will end up flowing in and out of other heresies. I saw this picture this last week and I thought it was a great example. So this is all the tributaries of the mighty Mississippi. Can you see all that? Isn't that cool? Anybody ever read Peter Zihan, you'll know this is a lot of what he was talking about in his earlier books, right? But here's all the tributaries of the Mississippi. And so these heresies begin to weave together. Little themes from different ones start percolating. So sometimes you think, you know, you're dealing with this and you go, well, that's just like that. And so it is because they just start to begin to flow into each other. Does that help as a picture? I thought it was a great picture. Kind of puts puts the, the geography, our own geography, in a in a better place. Okay. All right. More delineations. Manicheanism. Uh, and actually, I'm going to get into more definition now. But um, Manicheanism was a, was a third century dualistic religion founded by a guy by the name of Manny or Manichaeus, depends on who you you read. Manny, who fused. Persian, Christian, and Buddhist elements into a major new faith. Does anybody know what's the, what was the major, maybe one of the major religions, religious concepts in Persia, which is modern-day Iraq and Iran? What was one of the major ancient religious uh, movements in, in uh, Persia? Anybody know? Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism. Okay. So Persian, Christian, and Buddhist elements into a new faith. Manny's religion was a complex Gnostic system offering salvation by knowledge. So as you read that, and that came out of the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, as you read that, what do you already know? There's at least two things you should know right up front. What are some, what are some things you should know right up front? But, well, besides that, yes, it's false. Very good. What else? There's two key, there's two, at least two crucial words in there. It's a dualistic religion. It's a Gnostic system. What does that tell you right up front? If you think about dualistic system, what is dualism? Yes, every, there's, everything divides into light and dark, good and bad, right? And so, and they're hard, hard opposed, Okay. And then how does that normally work out, especially when you start thinking about a Gnostic system? How does that work out? Tan what a, what's a tangible way that that works out? 
out the thought processes. It can be, or it can be outright libertarian, uh, libertinism. Yeah, libertarian. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. The more knowledge you've got, right? Okay. So Gnostic and dualistic should already tell you the system promoted is a body bad, spirit good system. I cannot emphasize that enough. That dualism, that's where good and evil work out. Body bad, spirit good. Right? That's that's just it's it's a tangible, right? You can touch your body, right? So it's very tangible. Okay? Uh, it's also very anti-creation. And we talked about that. That, that Gnosticism is anti uh, anti-cosmic dualism, right? So it's just anti-creation, anti-history, anti-physicality, um, those things, okay? And so if you really want to get in touch with yourself, you need to escape this prison house of the soul and go and, you know, find yourself, your true self. Doesn't that sound contemporary by any chance? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Zoroastrianism, Christianity, and Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So you've already got a sense of what Manichaeanism is. We're not going to get too deep in it because we've actually dealt with it and didn't, you just didn't know it uh, to some extent. But here we go. The first, so, so Manichaeanism has three uh, in its cosmology and it's telling of the story of everything. Uh, it, it has a uh, it has uh, three basic epochs or moments. Okay, and so I'm going to go through these and um, very quickly for you, and I'm going to show you a chart so I can really confuse you. <laughs> Come on, everybody laugh. Come on. So the first moment describes a radical primordial dualism: light and darkness, good and evil, personified in the Father of Lights and the Prince of Darkness, were both co-eternal and independent. There's a very first thing with Manichaeanism, is that good and bad are personified in two co-equally powerful beings. Right? Anybody, does that sound like anything? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Right, right. I mean, just, so as you think about this, does this sound like anything uh, that you can think of today? You see some of this working out. There's actually a major system where this is laid out, but it's not Manichaeanism. But it's the same kind of thing. You ever look at the Korean, South Korean flag? The yin and the yang. Right? Even in martial arts, we were taught that. We were taught very often that with the, you know, you've got to have a positive and negative force, but it's all within that cosmology of that sense of good and evil always in tension. And, and there's actually a goodness to evil in the sense that it helps the good to do. It's, the, it's really kind of a strange deal. Anybody think of anything else? Something maybe, um, maybe that made millions and billions of dollars for people? Star Wars! Yes, the force. Luke, Luke, come to the dark side, right? Yeah, very interesting. So this shows up a lot. I mean, it's not just Manichaeanism. This shows up a ton, okay? And um, you'll sometimes, I, I, 
Wes is not here, but I think you will find something like this showing up, for example, in Mormonism. Okay? Things like that. So it's fairly prevalent, and you will run across this even today far more than you, you want to know. So, But there's a good, there's the first moment, okay? The second moment, in the middle moment, darkness became mixed with light in a pre-cosmic fall of primal man. This resulted in a second creation of the material world and man by the evil powers in which light is trapped in nature and human bodies. So when we were going through all about Gnosticism, you heard all of this, which is really interesting that Manichaeism is that clearly Gnostic. But, but it's the idea that all the physical is a trap that has trapped this, um, that has trapped this light that has become uh, mingled with darkness, uh, in, and it has to do with creation, okay? Light is trapped in nature and human bodies. And so, yes? Could be, yeah. I mean, and, but it's, it's just language for good and evil, you know. I mean, we, we believe in a dualism. You can't miss it in Scripture, right? Um, so the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Or John, in 1 John, uses the light-darkness motif, right, in that, that way as well. But it's not a hard dualism in the sense that we're not saying this manifests itself as physical is bad, spirit is good, right? We would, if, if you get to that point and you hear somebody say that, you need to probably pull the reins in on them, okay? Yes? Maybe not, but we'll see. David, I tell you. All right, well, we'll get there, okay? Hold that thought, okay? So, now think about this, too, in some uh, specific modern movement um, that's been around. For ever since the fall, prophets have been sent by the Father of Lights, including Zoroaster in Persia, Buddha in India for the East, and Jesus in the West. But Manny was the greatest prophet who, as the paraclete, now what is that language? What is a paraclete? Yeah, the comforter. And who is that that Jesus says that is? The Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? He's claiming divine inspiration for himself. As the paraclete proclaims salvation by gnosis, by knowledge consisting of static ascetic practices. By, by just, just a quick observation, does that sound familiar to anything you notice today, a major movement from today? That feels like Islam, doesn't it? Right? And so as I've said before, I think... Islam, I think you can safely say Islam is actually a, uh, a light Christian heresy. In fact, it appears that Muhammad actually had contact with two Christian heretical groups as he got ready to write, as he was writing um, most of the, the, the uh, Quran. But it's interesting that that same pattern, right? and you'll see this in others as well. Anybody ever dealt with, um, remember the Jesus people, you know, during that time, there's all these little cults that showed up. In the streets, you know, there was uh, the Way International, there was uh, uh, the, the Family of God, and, and some of those, and you will find that some of those, in fact, Est is kind of that way, uh, where you have this, um, so it was a conversation Jeff and I had some time back, but there's always the new prophet, and I'm the new prophet, that kind of thing. Jesus was one of them, but I'm the real deal, right, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that same pattern. Yeah. So in the last days, to get to David's point earlier, in the last days of the second moment, a great war is to be concluded with judgment and a global conflagration lasting uh, 1,468 years. Light will be saved and everything material destroyed. You got there. Right, right. So that gives you a, a, just kind of a synopsis of Manichaeanism, just a very simple one, okay? Um, here's a chart. Are you ready to get really confused? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was scripted, yeah. So, so Manny actually had... Um, there's two groups within Manichaeanism. There were two levels. So, by the way, always be concerned about when you start hearing about two different levels, right? So, you know, uh, but he had the elect and the hearers. And so the hearers were outside and they were just being initiated. They had to cross the line at some point, but the elect were the ones that were fully in, enveloped in the inner mysteries of knowledge. And so there was a whole ritualism, there was a hard asceticism. So instead of being um, libertine, they were actually very legalistic, very hard asceticism, uh, very often, um, most often, uh, celibate, no, no marriage whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. Well, there's no desire to continue because you had this conflagration coming and usually, usually the conflagration is in our lifetime, right? So you think, about the, you think about certain Christian movements in the 1840s, a specific one where they sold everything and went up the mountain to wait for Jesus' return, right? Why do I need to procreate? Why do I need to save and any of that stuff? Because it's all happening now, right? It's a good, good observation. Yes. I don't know. It just does at some point. So Bob asked, if, if good and evil are actually co-equal, then how does good actually end up winning? And in their system it does. And I don't, I'd have to go back and look more deeply, but there's somehow it happens in, their, in the way they have it set up. They have a tiebreaker at the end. Hey, so I showed Wes this the other day. My first martial arts competition, I was... I was sparring against a guy who was about this tall, and he was like 18, and I was already 50 at that point. And we're sparring, and we get down, and we have a tie score, and they throw in the towel, which means that um, it's a, after that towel's thrown in, it's a tiebreaker. And so we, we were going at it, and I just ended up accidentally tripping him. I had no intention of tripping him, but I tripped him. He got on the ground, and I tagged him. I got one point. Woo! I won! That was it. It was a, it was a sudden death. Uh, it was great. Right, right. Great question. 
So here's a chart for you to kind of give you up to uh, where we're at now in, in the Manichean system, not beyond this, but up to where we are now. And so hopefully that'll help. It's very Gnostic. You've got, you've got intermediaries. You've got the five splendors, the 12 aeons, which are emanations from the, the Father. Um, all these things in between. By the way, does anybody know anything about um, the Essenes, the Jewish heretical sects? That was part of um, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of that background, that community. So even before Jesus, there was this going on in Judaism. There were little sects going on like this, okay? And if you ever get into Kabbalah, if you ever, don't, don't get into Kabbalah. Do not follow Madonna into Kabbalah, okay? Or whoever, right? So, but if you ever look into Kabbalah, it has some very similar things. So does anybody ever remember reading Ellie, Ellie Weiss? Is that, I mentioned his name right? Um, Knight, I think it was the name of the book, Knight. Uh, he was a Jewish, um, Jewish writer who was in a concentration camp and, um, during World War II, and it's a really gut-wrenching story. It's just, leaves you, he, I believe he committed suicide after he wrote the book somewhere, I, if I don't remember correctly. But if you read the introduction, it's really interesting because his whole world shatters he was inducted into Kabbalah, and so, and he says it in there in the introduction. Just read the introduction. And so there's a bit of God in every human being. Right? So there's light been mixed with the darkness in every human being. And he could not get his mind around then how somebody like Hitler could be sheer evil. Right? And it, and it shatters his faith because, I mean, his whole concept, and that's how you, what goes on in the book. So this is not just. Uh, um, I mean, you see these same things beginning to form in, um, around the same time period, but they still just keep perking and keep coming up like a, like a uh, bad pimple. I don't know. Anyway, so here's uh, Prince of Darkness and the same kind of intermediaries and then mingled in the moment. And here we are living now um, in this mixture between light and darkness. I'm sorry about the small print in there, but that kind of gives you a pictorial description of what um, of kind of that Manichaean um, cosmology the way they had the things set up so before I go any further any questions that I can answer yeah yeah so Think about that. So this is, remember what we've said, and, and Alistair McGrath has done a great job in his book, Heresy, hammering home that most of these heresies are culturally conservative. This is what people were used to before the gospel came. This is the kind of thinking they're used to. This makes sense to the larger community and culture. And here comes Christianity and comes and says, no, God actually became one of us. Body is not bad. We're not a mixture of light and darkness in that sense of that Manichaean sense. And God has done something about it. He bridged that gap personally, not by sending some emissary who was four times removed from him. And here's what he has to say about it. And God continues to be, you know, the son continues to be fully God and fully human for all eternity because body is not bad. Creation is not evil, right? So now you come in with that message and it is, it's radical.
Right, right. Yeah, and to gain that knowledge, which would be the righteousness, gain that, gain that knowledge, right? Yes. Yeah, right, it is. I mean, so that's why, go back and read, then after thinking about this, go back and read 1 John. And you will notice that whoever he's, whoever he's pushing against, they fit into this river, right? This kind of thinking. They, this, these people have been part of the church and now have left and say they have a higher spirituality. And John is telling the Christians to whom he's writing, he says, no, you actually have the spirit of truth too. You don't need them to teach you. You still need teachers, that's Christ's design, but you don't need them to teach you. You actually have, by the grace of God, what you're supposed to have. And the love of God himself has been displayed for you and given to you in Christ. Who, and this is how you learn to love, it's all this other stuff. But if you read First John with this in the background, you realize what John is pushing against is this kind of, of uh, stream that's flowing even in his day early on like that. So that goes along with something David was talking about there. So the greatest opponent to Manichaeanism was an ex-Manichaean from North Africa. Anybody know who that was? Augustine. Augustine was a hearer in the Manichaean system for about 13 years. He knew this well from the inside out. And when he was converted, by the way, it was Anselm. It was under, uh, in Milan, and Bishop Anselm, uh, God used him, not Anselm, excuse me, Ambrose, used Ambrose to actually bring him around to where he started going, oh, this Manichaeanism stuff is not healthy. And then came the moment when he goes back home and he hears the children on the other side of the wall, tole lege, take up and read. And he goes and reads Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, um, and uh, comes to realize he needs Jesus, right? It's really pretty cool. Um, but anyway, so, so Augustine is probably the greatest Manichaean opponent and so many of his works have Manichaeanism in mind when you read them. He's actually combating some form of Gnosticism or Manichaeanism and, and trying to, uh, you know, in some sense, draw in the things that they get right and show where it's right and then explode where they get it all wrong, okay? And so Augustine is probably the greatest uh, opponent. So if you, has anybody ever read his confessions? Yeah, parts of them, yeah. You get to the last three chapters of the Confessions and your mind gets kind of, you know, scrambled eggs appear after a while, right? Because he's, he's a very deep philosopher as well. And so it gets a little, I get a little lost in there. But, but you can see him actually bringing that out. He tells a story about being a Manichaean in there and, and how that worked out. And his, for him, it actually worked out not with asceticism, but more libertinism. He was a, he was a fairly sexually active before he became a Christian. I mean, yes. We'll just say that, okay? I mean, his one prayer was, uh, Lord, make me continent, but not yet. Right? I mean, he was, yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So Augustine actually answers him. Uh, you can read all of his stuff. We're going to get into some things here in a minute that with um, leave that some of that behind. But but uh, but that's one of the major heresies in the day. So what do you see modern manifestations of Manicheanism? We've actually talked about a few of them already, but where are some other ways? And if it's something we've said before, then just say it again. Yeah, Mormonism and Islam, right? So in more institutional ways, you can see it, right? And if you start looking at... um, um, you start looking at some of the Eastern mystical movements, you know, New Age stuff, you'll see some of that there as well. If you listen to them, you start to realize, oh, they're into the light-darkness dualism, hard dualism thing, you know. Yes? Sure, there's, there's that, yeah. And there's other ways it shows up in culture. Well, that's a great that's a great example. Yeah, I mean, so the the love affair we have with immediate information is almost so that we become the better informed, so we know more, so we can save ourselves. There is a little bit of edge to that. That's a good observation. Yeah, there's a lot of that in that thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that language right there, you know, the you just need to go find yourself. I mean, there's some way, I mean, you could say that to people. Sometimes you should say that to some people, you know. There's certain situations, but a lot of times when that's used, it's the idea of the real you is somewhere inside, and the rest of it is not the real you. And I think then you've already begun to move into that, that stream, right? So how else do you see that? Think about cultural things uh, besides movement-specific institutions. Yeah, and that's a great observation. I mean, that's that's true. I mean, you you do end up can end up in that place. Yeah. Think about it. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a great observation. That'd be a good question for somebody who watches those movies to come back and look at it and tell us about it. You know, but I do see some of that. It's interesting. One of them, um, the computer-generated. There was one movie, and I just happened to see it. There was one where there was an artificially made superhero, 
and it slipped in that this was Yahweh. I mean, that was the name I actually heard them use for him. It was the only time I've heard that. I had to go back and play it back and say, did they really say that? You know, and so, but then they never use that name anymore, as far as I can tell. I don't ever watch them hardly ever, so I don't know. What about it? I'm sorry? Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. And that that would that'd be where I would say Ecclesiastes is definitely not Manichean because he's as Bill Price put it, yeah, I love the way Bill Price you remember Bill Price. I remember I love the way he put it in his book that Ecclesiastes is paint stripper for the soul. I love that statement, right? And so it's it's almost like Solomon seems to be laying out here's whatever here's what folk religion says, here's what common knowledge says about where you find real meaning and value. And then he, after he pushes you, he does a Francis Schaeffer thing. You know, Francis Schaeffer would say, you keep asking questions of the person until you finally have them uh, over the cliff and they realize their house is firmly planted in midair. And just before they fall, you grab them and pull them back onto the, onto the cliff, right? Back up there with you. And that's what Ecclesiastes, what Solomon does all the time. That's why he keeps coming back around. He talks about all of this is meaningless and he shows why. And then he says, Here's the simple satisfactions or soundest, that kind of approach. But it's not done yet. He keeps pushing, keeps pushing until finally you get towards the end where we're going to be today, in the last, the last uh, uh, session on Ecclesiastes. And he comes in the, and he lands and you go, oh, that's where you were headed the whole time. So you were pushing us the whole time to reassess and reevaluate a world that does have a lot of Manichaean mindsets but other aspects too and you're you're getting us to question those and to come down solid where we need to be so yes yeah yeah right 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 yeah i don't know that francis schaefer watched wiley Cody, but i could see where that fit yeah he would probably have something really nasty to say about wiley Cody, but Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That roadrunner. Every time I see the word Acme, my mind immediately goes back to the, the coyote. So. so what are some biblical responses to Manichaeanism, both ancient and modern? So just, I mean, just some simple biblical responses. Some places you go to Scripture uh, that lay that out. I already, give you, I already gave you one, all five chapters of 1 John. Yeah, there you go. Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, so you start at Genesis 1. Okay, where else? Huh? Well, it's long. So I'm not going to get into what Augustine had to say. I just wanted you to know that Augustine, that Augustine was a big anti-Manichean. Um, but he, was, he, was, he would go to creation and he would go to the incarnation. So he would did that a lot. Okay, that's the other one is the incarnation. If you think of passages about God becoming fully human. What are some passages that you can think of? Yes, absolutely. So just think about Philippians 2. Always go to Philippians 2, right? Uh, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem your, uh, others better than yourself. Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taken to himself the form of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul goes on, and later on in Philippians, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await our, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be like his, his glorious body. Right? And he does that by the power by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. And so Jesus, part of his, in, his incarnation is a sacrifice. God became, the Son of God became fully human, and as our catechism puts it, continues to be and will forever continue to be fully human. Already you have the answer to Gnosticism and Manichaeanism. Now you may be going, I don't understand all that. That's okay, but he's physical. That's why when, for example, that's why when Stephen looks up at his martyrdom, who does he see standing at the Father's right hand? Notice notice number one, he knows who it is because there's distinctive physical qualities He sees him standing. Who does he see standing at the Father's right hand? Jesus. Okay? I mean, and then John, Revelation chapter 1. He hears the voice behind him. He turns around and he looks. And who does he see? He sees the Son of Man, right? He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. Gloriously transformed, but he's physical. I love the way our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, that it was the very body that was mangled on the cross, came forth from that grave, gloriously transformed. That's our hope. Our hope is not that we will die and go be with Jesus like little ghosts, little Caspers running around out there. Woo! Right? You remember Casper? Everybody remember Casper? Right? Our hope is that Jesus will then reunite us with our physical bodies, that He will gloriously raise from the dead and transform, and these bodies will no longer be subject to mortality or misery. Christianity is the most body-affirming faith out there. Yes? Sure, yeah. It is radical. So you can go Philippians 2, just as an example. In 1 John, you can go to um, uh, Colossians. There's lots of places. Anywhere you go, go to Luke chapter 1 and 2. Here's the eternal Son of God who becomes fully human, even being a baby, right? Have to have his diaper changed and his nose wiped and all those other things, right? I mean, God is not ashamed of our createdness and our humanness. Now, I'm going, to get in, hold on. I'm going to get into some quotations here very quickly. I don't, we don't have much time left. But I want you to know that this answers most of our social and personal dilemmas that, um, that we have in the day. Whether it's body modifications, whether it's uh, cutting ourselves, whether it's um, uh, um, uh, sexual, gender re- sexual reassignment, any of those things. All of this is an answer. Okay, That's why this is so phenomenal. Because that's what our society right now is 
hugely Manichaean. That's what, you're, that's what we're up against. Okay? We are up against a Manichaeanism that is raging in our society. And so this gospel answer is good news. Okay? You want to say something? Right. Sure. Right, right. And, and then a lot of it has to do with the reasons for the cremation. Sometimes it's not a wrong thing. It depends on what it's for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody know who Dorothy Sayers was? She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and they did interact some. In, her, uh, uh, in, her, in a book called Christian Letters to a Post-Christian World, um, she said this, Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but to adapt men to Christ. Now let's just let that one sink in. It is the dogma that is the drama, not beautiful phrases, not comforting sentiments, nor vogue aspirations to loving kindness and uplift, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death showed that to the heathen, and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. I, she was a great writer. She's got a couple of those in there. But that's, I think that's why we need to be emphatic about the incarnation, but also we need to be emphatic about the resurrection. One time I had a, uh, a young teenager in a church tell me one time, he said, well, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, yeah, we believe that, but it's not that important for our salvation. Hello! It is huge! Right? And we need to emphasize it. All right. And then C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and it is, it, it is on page 91, by the way, in his book, Mere Christianity. Christianity is almost the is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some, that, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. It's a great statement, okay? Um, he and I would probably disagree on a few things, um, but I, he's, he's got that exactly right. That's why we're not anti-physical. Who is anti-physical? That's a horrible question, right? Who's anti-physical? The ones who say, no, look, don't be, don't be so infatuated with the outside of me. The real me is on the inside. That person is anti-physical. Does that make sense? Do you get what I'm saying? That's huge. Okay, here we go. One more. Maybe. I think. This is uh, from this book. I, I gave you the, the um, uh, book review this last week in the, my letter. But these are some of those statements that I had in that letter. And just say them again. The God we worship is not embarrassed by his creation. Rather, he loves it. And he acts from that love. Our ideas, listen to how our Christology, our, our belief about Christ is essential, center. 
our ideas about our own bodies interact with the ideas we have about Jesus. God fully demonstrates His delight in our humanity, demonstrates the, that creation is lovely and lovable in the event of Jesus' very physical, very human birth. And then a little bit later, he goes on to say, a truly Christian spirituality must also be a body-affirming spirituality. A truly Christian spirituality must be a body-affirming spirituality. This is why you hear me say, and I say this, I don't say it every Sunday, but I say it enough, it probably gets nagging. But like, for example, in our prayers, the biblical thing we do in our prayers is we throw our bodies into our begging and our posture into our praying. That's all the way through Scripture. Thinking that we only pray with our minds or our hearts and my body is not engaged. Now, there, I mean, I'm not saying that, that that can't happen. It does happen. It's fine. But our, uh, our obsession with, especially as Presbyterians, with not being physically active in our prayers, that's what the Charismatics and the Catholics do and the Eastern Orthodox, and we're not like them. Well, maybe it's the one thing they get right, right? Christian spirituality is a bodily, body-affirming spirituality. Does anybody hear anything good in there? God cares about your body. He loves it. It's not ugly, right? It's not horrible. Does sin impact it? Well, yeah. But God, this is the resurrection. God will fix all that. And we have a great day coming. Okay? Yes. Sure. Right, right. Right, and that's where going, what Bob said earlier about going back to Genesis chapter 1 so is, is good news in that regard, for example. So say it's somebody who had a body modification and then becomes, comes to see that, that, uh, um, a gender reassignment and comes to see, oh, now I believe in Jesus. What am I going to do with my body? And then you go to Genesis 1 and you go to Revelation 22 and say, well, if, if, it can't, if we can't correct those things, it will be corrected one day. Right, so God, so yes. Yeah. All right, so with all of this in mind, from the Manichean anti-cosmic dualism to the healthy, health-giving biblical response, how should this impact our faith, our relationships, our devotions and worship, our understanding of men and women, our sexuality, and our bodies? It's a big question. We don't have much time to answer it. Um, but it is, that's where I want us to go with this. How should this impact that? Let me, one last thing. I love the fact that when Augustine, this is his, one of his anti-Manichean moments. In the city of God, when Augustine is talking about the resurrection, he talks about how the God who loves us, who made us male and female, will raise males as males and females and females because it's good. It's very good. I never thought about that until I ran across that in the city of God and I went, oh yeah, better than a V8. Woohoo! But that's how beautiful that maleness and femaleness is and how right it is that when he raise, raises us from the dead, we will, boy, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. I mean, it, that's great news. 
So you can see, you can see, first off, you can see how Christianity pushes against the modern moment, right? And against cultural, the cultural conservatism of early, of the early years, and why it is good news. So there. Anybody else, real quick, because we're going to sing, we're going to practice our hymn. Anything else on any of this? All right. So next week we're going to look at Donatist or Donatism, the Donatists, and that'll be fun. All right. So let me pray, and then we will go to our hymn. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who are the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. We thank you that our bodies are beautiful in your sight, that you love them. And, and we know that because you now have a body. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, rejoice in this, we pray that we would be able to tell others, that we would tell others, friends, neighbors, of the, the goodness of what you've given us and in, in of this physicality. And so, Lord, as we get ready to worship you, we pray that you would draw us in and draw us close and lift us up by your Spirit and that you would, um, you would fill us one and all with, with joy and rejoicing with peace. In, Jesus, in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.